I saw a story some time back about a Sunday school class where the teacher was instructing the children about the forgiveness of sins. And going a bit Socratic, she was asking questions and hoping for them to answer in order to lead them to the truth. And she asked the class, what do you have to do to obtain the forgiveness of sins? It's a very fitting question. It's the kind of question that the Bible deals with very directly and slantedly in lots of different ways, a way of describing some of what Jesus came to do. He came into the world that he might take away our sins. He might destroy the work of the devil. So she asked the class this important thing. What do you have to do to obtain the forgiveness of sins? The class was silent. No one uttered the first Sunday school answer that you would have expected them to answer with. No one said, Jesus. That's the answer to all the questions in Sunday school. What do you have to do to obtain the forgiveness of sins? And little Billy raised his hand and said with confidence, Sin. You have to sin. That's a joke. But he stumbled onto a profound theological idea. In order to obtain the forgiveness of sins, in order to participate in some of the wonder of what God entered the world to do, you actually have to sin in the first place. you got to have something to wash away. you got to have something about you that's defective that needs fixing. In our last sermon in this series of All Shall Be Well at Advent, we're going to talk today about a mercy worth emphasizing. And what I'm hoping to do is to show you that one of the things that happens in the world around us right now, one of the dangers always among people who have no room in their thoughts for God, is that you'll quickly show your unwellness by thinking that you're quite well. The world is always doing this, is always saying that things that God says are evil, the world says, no, 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 they're right and good. And things that God says, that is good, the world says, no, no, no. Very often, that is evil. What do you have to do to obtain the forgiveness of sins? You have to be someone who sins. One of the first signs of spiritual health is that of knowing that you're unwell. And for a world that thinks itself well, that thinks it's healthy when it's sick, there's no mercy. And we're going to talk about that today. And we're going to start with this point. The world needs to be washed of its unwellness by God's mercy. The world needs to be washed of its unwellness by God's mercy. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Titus 3. At one time, we too... We're foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. The apostle throughout this whole letter to Titus, who was on the island of Crete, who had been left there in order that he would appoint elders who could govern and teach churches in this place, 
in this place where folks had gotten cattywampus. They had high aspirations for what their life ought to be, but they were not meeting them. Their unwellness was apparent to everyone except themselves. And he's saying, here's what I want you to teach. And he's describing the kind of situation in which the uh, uh, Titus is supposed to stress these things which are excellent and profitable for everyone. And he says, here is the situation you're in. People are foolish. That means in their heart they say there is no God. It means they don't follow God's ways. They're disobedient. They're deceived. They're duped. They're tricked. They think they're doing what's right, but they're not. They're enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. They live in malice and envy, hating and hating, being hated and hating one another. I bring this up because it is very important in a time where there's great cultural wars going on. They've been going on for a while. Hutch mentioned this last week. You know the great hubbub caused by the duck commander? Is it Roberts or Robert's son? Robert's son. If you need to know anything about this show, ask Hutch. I'll, it's funny. It's, I like it. It's funny. But I don't know much about it as Hutch does. He's going for the look here. You notice his beard's getting a little fuller? If you notice little gray strands in it, you know he's gone full bore. Well, one of the things that was interesting to me about that hubbub is that when I read this quotation that he made to GQ magazine, when they said, what are you, what's your definition of sin? He said, start with homosexuality and then kind of roll out from there. And I thought, ah, what a horrible thing to say. And you say, what, do you work for GLAD? No, I don't. But I think the most dangerous thing that we do as Christians is that we reduce all sin to sexual sin. That's what's happening right now. And so that the world, all the world thinks is, here's what Christians think sin is. Christians serve a God who's looking out for anybody who's smiling, laughing, having fun, enjoying themselves, and listening to their desires in any way at all, and he's out to stamp it and squash it and smash it. Because we have categorized all sin as sexual sin. Dorothy Sayers wrote a book one time, or an essay rather, called The Other Six Deadly Sins. And she's writing in the 1950s about this very tendency of ours to lump all of sin into one gigantic category, what you do with your body sexually. Now that is a sin. I'm not saying it isn't. But the danger of thinking that's the only one is that you... You deprive yourself of the kind of mercy that's meant to meet all the different kinds of maladies that exist in our world. And so, listen to what Paul says. Malice, foolish, disobedient, enslaved by passions and pleasures. What he's saying is, there is a tendency, and the rest of the Bible would bear this out, the biggest problem that someone practicing homosexuality has, just as the person who's practicing homo, uh, heterosexual promiscuity, just as the problem of the person who is pursuing wealth without regard for anyone around him, just as the person who is frequently gossiping without concern for how their words hurt anybody else, the problem for all of those people is not their singular actions. The problem is that they have made themselves a law unto themselves. The problem is that they are the center of their world and think, I decide what's right for me. If I feel it, 
I must do it. If I desire it, I must have it. Anything that stands in the way of that, that is wrong. That's the problem. It's self-love. In one place, I can't find it. I'm sure C.S. Lewis said this. And I've looked and looked and looked, and I don't know if I just imagined it. And if he, if he didn't say it, I, I came up with this profound thing. And I've looked a lot. But some place or another, he says, the result of sin in the world is not necessarily more crime. The result of sin run rampant is excessive autobiography. Now, if he didn't say that, he should have said that. Because you think about that. That's the whole problem. If we're designed to fulfill the two greatest commands, that's what being human is. Loving God with all your heart. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Then a world where people are only thinking about themselves all the time and say they had an opportunity, uh, an interweb, for instance, where they could just write all the time as they're watching themselves live, they could constantly be updating what they're doing. And everybody could look at it and then feel horrible about themselves. Does that happen to anybody? You ever read someone's blog or looked at their, looked at their Instagram and thought, man, the moments of their lives are so much more pictorial than mine. <laughs> There's a psychological category now called the fear of missing out. It's this sense that somewhere somebody is having a better life than you. And excessive autobiography engenders that because we're all walking around trying to prove ourselves, trying to make sure that we matter. We're deceived. We're not listening to the way the Lord says that you matter. We're enslaved to our passions. If we want something, we have to have it. And to deny it is a, is a criminal act against ourselves and against our wholeness. And if you wipe away, wipe away any of these kinds of sins, you wipe away any possibility of the washing that comes from God's mercy. The biggest problem of sin in our world is the way that Terrell Owens described it. I've heard Matt Jelly say this on numerous occasions. I love me some me. I love me some me. That's a great, that's a UTC graduate. Maybe, I don't know if he learned it there at UTC. He learned it from the womb. I love me some me. And if you love you some you, above all other loves, you're sure not going to listen to God say anything. You're sure not going to listen to the cries of the poor are the cries of the people around you that you're hurting. Because anytime any desire, any wish, anything comes into conflict with your desire, your wish, you will win. That's what sin is. It's a complete anti-God state of mind. And so the world is filled with that, Paul says. That's the situation it's in. And he says, but here's what happened. But, verse 4, when the kindness... And love of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. 
The world needs to be washed by mercy. And we are those who have been washed and live by Christ's mercy. We, the church, are those who have been washed and who live by God's mercy. That is what Paul is telling this church here. That they live in this way. But you know how he starts to tell them? You know how he starts to tell Titus? In terms of what you should stress? He says, we too once lived among them. We too were foolish, disobedient, deslaved, malice, envy, hating one another, being hated. Do you see what's interesting there? This is Paul, the sterling religious dude. A guy who could look back on his pre-converted, pre-meeting up with Jesus' life and say, I now characterize that as hating and being hated by one another. As envying, as being disobedient, being ruled by pleasures and passions. It's very important for us, as we approach our world, to realize the poor, the, what the Apostle Paul says is, we too, we too. The only thing that separates Christians from the world is the mercy of God. G.K. Chesterton is reported to have written in one time when the London Times had a sort of contest. They were asking this question, what is wrong with the world? Asking for people to wax eloquently like this I believe, to write in and show what do you think is wrong with the world? What needs to be fixed about it? What is its ailment? And Chesterton wrote in with this one sentence, Dear Sirs, to the question of what is wrong with the world? Dear Sirs, comma, I am, period. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That is a Christian response. What is wrong with the world? The first place to look is to say, I am. We too have been like that. But have received something. If you realize that you've received mercy, you can start to do what the apostle says. Be obedient, subject to rulers and authorities, even ones you don't respect. To be ready to do whatever is good. To slander no one. To be peaceable, considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. You can actually start showing humility to all people if you don't think you're better than them. If you honestly start to believe when you look out at someone who is, you think is lost as they can be, and you really pause for a moment and say, wait a second, I also would be lost as I could be if it had not been for the intervention of God to intercept me from myself. Every person you meet is a potential object of God's mercy. And if you believe that, you believe you're someone who's received it, not because of righteous things you have done. That's what he says. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done. Not because you were taller, not because you had executive style hair, not because you came from the right family, not because of anything you were about to do that was heroically righteous. He saved you because of his mercy. If you let that seep into you, you'll find all kinds of judgment and condemnation for other people draining out. 
That doesn't mean you won't find things they do sinful. You listen to Jesus now. All kinds of things the world says are not sinful are. But you won't hold them in contempt. You'll think and say, how was I treated when I lived in rebellion and ignorance to God? Did he kick me out? When someone comes up to you and they want financial help, isn't it easy? Middle class people who aren't in financial distress, all three of you. Isn't it easy when you're not struggling so much and you find someone who's in desperate straits to suddenly become their fierce, fierce judge? Oh, they squander their money. They've been irresponsible. They haven't used faithfully everything that God's entrusted to them. When you've been characterized by mercy, though, and you realize, hey, wait, 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 wait. I was washed. I was once like that. You step back for a second and you say, wait a second, have I ever squandered any money? Oh, my goodness. Maybe that's all I do. Have I, ever, have I always been faithful that God has entrusted to me? Pff, I hope he's not keeping a tight ledger. Oh, it tempers you if you start to realize how God has treated you. Not because of righteous things you have done, but just because of his mercy. It helps you to be merciful to other people. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, has written all these great pastoral letters in the 18th century. And in one of them he talks humorously about this woman who says, I believe in unconditional election, which means that God loved me before I was even born. That God decided to save me before I had ever done a thing, good or bad. And you know why she said it? Because once I got alive, I can't imagine that there was anything in my life that would have made God want to say, I want that one. So it must be that God picks us out before we're born. See, that's what Paul says. Not because of righteous things you've done, but just because of his mercy, he's washed you. He's then put his spirit in you, hatched a heart in you, and given you suddenly someone who didn't have a desire for God. All of a sudden, you've got a desire for God. Somebody who wouldn't walk through the earth in their business or in their relationships or with their way of using money or their way of treating people, way of using their bodies, who would never ask the question, what does God want me to do with all of this? And all of a sudden, you're saying, what does God want me to do with this? It's because you've been invaded from outer space. The kindness and love of God has appeared and he saved you with the washing of regeneration. He has 